I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio this week are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Down the line from Milan, we have Rachel Sanderson, our Italy correspondent. And also down the line, we have Davide Serra, who is the founder of Hedge Fund Algebris. This week, we're going to take a special in-depth look at the fallout from the Italian referendum and looking at RBS as it tries to settle old scores with old shareholders. First, though, to Italy where the whole of the country and certainly the financial sector has been plunged into uncertainty following a pretty decisive loss for Prime Minister Matteo Renzi in the referendum there on constitutional reform. Mr Renzi has offered his resignation and the future of the banking sector has been thrown into uncertainty, certainly some big banks. Martin, give us your 30,000-foot view. The latest news on the political front is that Matteo Renzi has been asked by the Italian president to stay on as prime minister until the budget law is passed, extending his stay for at least another week if he agrees to it. That's potentially quite good news as far as the banking sector concerned, which has emerged as the biggest focus of investor jitters because you've got two of the three biggest banks in Italy in the middle of raising large amounts of capital, one more urgently than the other, but both potentially affected by this. Monte di Paschi di Siena, which looks like it could be heading for a government bailout if its planned €5 billion capital raising is torpedoed. I mean, there are talks now and they need to decide this week, I think, between the Italian government and the ECB, the regulator, to decide what happens there. The other big uncertainty, perhaps from a slightly stronger position, is that Unicredit, the country's biggest bank, which is trying to raise some €13 billion, that's expected to be unveiled next week, but not to actually happen until early next year. So they've got a bit more time there and they're coming from a stronger position. Well, let me go to Rachel in Milan now. Firstly, to untangle where we are at with this whole Monte de Paschi rescue fundraising. They'd come out with a plan to raise 5 billion euros a little while ago. They'd embarked last week on the first leg of that with a kind of debt for equity swap, where I think they got about a billion euros of sign up for that programme. But then the second and third phase of that, getting in an anchor investor, supposedly Qatar, and then issuing new shares to existing shareholders and others. Those parts of the plan seem to have been thrown completely off course by the Renzi referendum. Is that fair to say, Rachel? Yes, that's fair to say, but I think it's important to take a step back, which is the reason that Monte Paschi, which of course is Italy's third largest bank by assets, currently the reason it's having to raise this $5 billion in capital is because the ECB bank supervisor earlier in the year said that it wanted it to get rid of about 28 billion euros in gross non-performing loans and of course if you're going to sell non-performing loans off particularly in one fell swoop you're going to open up a capital gap on your balance sheet so that's why Monte Paschi is specifically having to go for this five billion but yes it is a cross-conditional deal 
It is extremely complex. It is extremely difficult under even the most tranquil market circumstances with the volatility that's been injected into the market over the last few days. It has become even more difficult. What we are seeing at the moment is that Marco Morelli, the chief executive of Monte de Paschi, has flown to Frankfurt and is in meetings there today. My understanding is that he is looking to buy a bit more time because the advisors, JP Morgan, have been seeking for some time to see whether the Qatar Investment Authority would be willing to inject one or maybe even two billion in as an anchor investor and that there is a belief inside the bank and amongst the bankers advising that if they do that, you could get between 10 and 20 other investors who'd be willing to stump up around 100 million euros each, which would help the bank out clearly. Well, we've got a situation where Renzi is sort of prime minister for another week, but there is no clarity who will come in after him, although we've got names in the frame such as Finance Minister Piercarlo Paduan, which is something that the markets would see with a certain amount of assurance. Clearly, Mr. Morelli at Monte de Paschi is now asking the ECB if he can push back the time frame for this deal. Going back to that first point, the reason they are under such a tight time frame at the moment is because the ECB had wanted these non-performing loans to be hived off the balance sheet by the end of this year in order to do a capital hike at Monte de Paschi, which would coincide with the time frame for getting rid of the non-performing loans. They were going to have to submit documents into Italy's stock exchange by the end of this week to be able to get a cap hike away before the end of the year. So as you can see, this is highly complex. Okay, so that may buy them a little bit more time. But even if time was on their side, would they really be able to persuade the Qatar Investment Authority to proceed with this anchor investment? As far as I understand it, the QIA's interest in this would not necessarily particularly be in Monte de Paschi, but actually in gaining a kind of favourable reputation in Italy, positioning itself to be able to get other, maybe more attractive investment opportunities elsewhere in Italy. But of course, if the government is no longer the same one as they initially were dealing with under Renzi, then that all falls away. Of course, on top of that, the economic situation is uncertain. Exactly. I think the QIA as a buyer is well known that sometimes it buys for, as it were, the actual market interest and two for possible political influence or political interest. And that's certainly been discussed in Milan over the last few weeks. What I'm hearing here is that the bank is being readied for a precautionary recapitalisation, which it would be allowed to do under EU rules. If there is a sort of systemic risk from the bank, what they're looking at is pumping some money in, but also a mandatory conversion of about five billion in subordinated debt into equity at face value, which would be able to shore up its balance sheet in that way. There is a broader discussion, of course, because we have other banks in Italy, particularly two banks in the Veneto, which by some estimates need around 3 billion euros as well to be pumped into them to shore up their capital because they have been leaking deposits and just a very weak pair of banks in the Veneto that they also need money. So there is a question about whether, one, is there going to be contagion or concerns spooking investors from the Monte Paschi situation and it will spook investors and then make it difficult for the Veneto banks to raise that capital, or two, There is some limited discussion that I've heard about would it be possible to actually get a broader umbrella deal in which you could get 10 billion that the Italian state might be able to get the sign off to pump into all three banks at the same time. Yes, these precautionary capitalizations, lovely euphemism for state bailouts, basically. Thank you, Rachel, for that. Let me go to Davide now. Davide, you are a big investor in financial securities of various kinds. Would you buy into Italian banks right now? Well, we have kept position over the course of the year in Tesa and Unicredit hybrid security. So they are in 
additional tier one security, uh, contingent convertible, and through the sellout in the summer, the indiscriminate sellout of the summer out of fear of um, basically deflation forever, we've taken a fairly significant position in Banca Intesa at around 1.6 euro, which is the strongest bank in Italy, and it's one of the strongest in VCB under stress test. So we do think that Italy is attractive. I think the MPS situation will be resolved, probably like Rachel said, and that's important because basically it removes systemic risk. Unicredit, I think, will be able to do its capital raise, and I think it will become a very interesting opportunity in the right session. And then I think at that point, the third very important opportunity, it's in the non-performing loan space, where we as algebraists have become the number one player in the market over the last three years in the secure space for the market share. And that's because buying distressed assets, uh, we're really somehow insulated by the so-called market volatility. Uh, we're buying real assets with secured loans, and their returns are safer, more stable, less liquid, but very attractive in today's world. One final thought on the question of these advisors. Now, Rachel, you mentioned JP Morgan playing an instrumental role. Medio Banker is obviously advising as well. Given that Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan's chief, famously did the deal originally with Renzi to come in and lead this situation, what happens now? I mean, are they going to walk away from this kind of pre-underwriting agreement they had for the Monte de Paschi rights issue? Do they stay involved with the non-performing loan element of the deal? Or does it all evaporate if it ends up in a state bailout? It's all a bit up in the air. My understanding from within the market is that the bankers are pushing as far as they can to get a market solution, but they have a very, very, very soft underwriting on this so that they can walk away because of market conditions quite easily. And it was very much a situation whereby there was a decision taken, and you could almost say it's a cross-party decision taken, that they didn't want to have these problems in the banking sector disrupt the political campaigning in the running to the referendum. And so now there is an acceptance in Italy that if Montepaschi needs to be bailed out, I don't think there are going to be many recriminations with anybody. Remembering this is a bank that has had collapsing fortunes for a decade. We've had, you know, mismanagement costly acquisitions on the cusp of the financial crisis, fraud, hidden derivatives, etc. So this has been a very slow motion train crash for a very long period of time. Let me just go to Martin for a very final word. Just on that, a very senior banker in Italy told me yesterday that actually Renzi, if he stays on for another week or so, he's perfectly positioned and perfectly authorised to finish the job on Monte di Paschi and take whatever flack there is politically, effectively bailing it out, which won't be popular, but he can do that as his kind of last coup de grace before leaving office. But I mean, what I'm hearing now is we're looking at elections in the spring and, and Renzi will be planning on running from his position as head of the... Partito Democratico, to do that. We should move on to our second story of the day, which is RBS back in the news again. Emma, they're trying to settle another of their legacy problems, this time dating back to the 2008 capital raising, which was around the time of the ABN AMRO acquisition. So what exactly have they done? RBS has actually settled now with three of the groups that represent hundreds of institutional investors and some of the largest pension funds, both in the UK and Europe. So they've agreed to pay them up to £800 million to compensate them for this. So this stems from the 2008 rights issue, as you say, whereby investors bought into £12 billion worth of shares. 
And these investors allege that RBS misrepresented the state of their financial health at the time. It was only months after the rights issue in April 2008 that US property markets crashed and really caught them out in terms of their exposure to complicated derivative-backed instruments, collateralized debt obligations, for example, as well as their low capital buffers and their reliance on the wholesale funding markets. So it was later that year that they required a UK government bailout to the tune of about £45 billion and the value of shares crashed which is the premise for these investors' claims, essentially. So there are still two groups that have yet to settle with RBS, and one of them represents about 27,000 retail investors. And they seem pretty intent on taking not just RBS, but also their former management, including the former chief executive Fred Goodwin, to court in a trial that would start next March and would probably last for quite a few months. This is one of the many headaches that's been hanging over RBS. Martin, just put that in context for us. Well, I think just to refer back to events of the previous week where RBS failed the Bank of England stress tests and the main reason that they failed in that exercise was because of litigation costs, misconduct costs, which dragged them below their minimum threshold. And the biggest misconduct risk, of course, is the Department of Justice in the US, which is expected to settle with RBS for as much as 12 to $13 billion. So that is really hanging over the group. And until that's clarified, nobody really knows how to value this bank. So legacy conduct issues stemming back from before the financial crisis still cast a huge shadow over this majority state-owned bank. And 800 million to former shareholders is a drop in the ocean compared to that kind of cost, isn't it? That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Emma here in the studio, Rachel in Milan, and Davide Serra from Algebris. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.